But there was a man named Simon who had previous, previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit for he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered the money saying, give me this power also that that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven. For I see that you were in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray to God for me that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now, when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. May God add his blessing to this, his word. You may be seated. Last week, when we were looking at how Saul was ravaging the church, we took this huge overarching perspective. It gave us the opportunity to uh, kind of rise up. It forced our eyes to, to move above the actual narrative of what was taking place. And I went all the way back to Genesis chapter 1, and then I was pointing also to Revelation chapter 22 and how everything that was taking place and that, that Saul was a part of, and uh, more importantly at that point, that, um, that Philip was a part of in uh, spreading the gospel of the kingdom of God was all about reuniting the kingdom, and it had these sweeping, overarching perspectives uh, that tied all of Scripture together um, through that message. And uh, what's interesting is now we went from that yesterday, I mean last week, of that overarching look of that theme of all of Scripture, and we're doing exactly the opposite we're actually slowing down and looking at one particular episode that takes place within this grand scheme. Um, last week was the Iowa caucuses, and so for sure, I mean, politics never ends anyway, but uh, for sure the presidential campaign season has, is in full effect, they're going strong, and we see this technique being employed when politicians are stumping 
uh, for office. They go, they have their platforms, they have their official position that talk about all of these really big ideas. Here's what I want to do with the economy. This is what I want to do about the defense of our nation. Here's how um, I think we ought to handle um, all of these issues that, that encompass the entirety of the nation. But what they will also do then is they'll give some sort of anecdote or they'll pull a guy up on the stage that's one farmer and they'll want Farmer John to tell his story and how it applies to the overarching message of what that politician is trying to communicate. And that actually is what we have here, is we have this sweeping, huge message of the gospel of the kingdom of God and what that's doing in reuniting the Jewish people and how that's extending to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And yet it pauses right here to look at one particular guy. It's stopping to look at this guy, Simon, the magician. And it's true that the gospel message unites the Jews and it's true that the gospel message unites Jews to Samaritans. And it's true that the gospel message even goes beyond that and unites Jews to Samaritans and extends to all of the world. But the, the point that slowing down and looking at this one particular episode with Simon the Magician is that even though this gospel message is going out throughout all the world and to all the ends of the earth, it does not mean that every single individual is going to be saved. It's known as universalism. Some people think, well, God is so gracious, and so they come up with in their own minds, well, you know, the grace of God knows no bounds, and so surely God is not so mean, and everyone eventually um, somehow, in some way, is going to be saved from judgment. And that whole concept of universalism is an absolute fallacy. It is anti-biblical. But what this passage does for us with Simon the Magician is it actually goes a step further than just refuting the idea that every single person everywhere and at all time is going to experience salvation from judgment. It actually teaches us that there are even some who believe and are not going to be baptized. Hopefully that is a little bit provocative and you think, how is that possible? And I hope to show that to you and I'm gonna show you how that unfolds within this passage as we look at, first of all, how the man, meaning Simon the magician is introduced then we're gonna see how the movement, and when I say the movement, I'm talking about the gospel message and that whole overarching big thing that's happening um, in the course of scripture, and then what it is, what message we can take from how these things are interacting, which is to say why it's even in here in the book of Acts at this particular point. So when we look at the guy himself, the man, Simon, we notice first of all, that I, I, it's even important to point out the conjunction that's right at the beginning. That's a contrasting conjunction. You notice that at verse 9 it says, but. So if you just look at the verse that precedes it, Acts 8, verse 8, it says, so there was much joy in that city. So the overarching theme is taking place. The gospel message is going out. This unity is happening. 
between, uh, among the Jews, between uh, those from Jerusalem and those in Samaria. And uh, there's much joy in the city, and now we have a change of tone in verse 9 where it says, but, and now we introduce this episode with a guy named Simon. Now, I have an ESV Bible. I don't know what you're carrying, but mine has a, um, a little italicized uh, title up there at the top that says Simon the Magician Believes. Those titles are not, you know, they're not inspired. They're there to help us find stuff in the Bible. But I know that we refer to him as Simon the Magician, but actually, if you look at the construction of the verse, what we see is that it's talking about the guy, Simon, but we don't want to get too wrapped up in the fact that he is a magician. And I say that because if you look, it says, but there was a man named Simon, and then you have as more backgrounded information, he is Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria. So here is this guy, Simon, and what Simon did was he had this history of for quite a while practicing some form of magic. And the main thing that is being, um, that the, the, the light is being shined on in these first few verses, in verses 9 to 11, about the man, Simon, is that he was of importance in the community. He was kind of a big deal. He, that, that Simon, the magician, had a lot to say about himself. He is the one that was selling himself. So look at verse 9 here. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria. And then look at what, what's referred to as the indicative verb here. In other words, it's the main verb, saying that he himself was somebody great. So that's what's important about the man here that's being introduced you know, the contrast, okay, we're changing direction from the whole city rejoicing. We get the, the limelight shown on, all right, here's our guy, Simon. Simon had practiced magic, and he was saying that he himself was somebody great. And what we continue to see in verses 10 and 11, not only does he say that he's somebody great, but the people are buying what he's selling. Look at verse 10. They, so these are all the people, they all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest. And look at how they're parroting what he's saying about himself, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. They're giving him attention, and they are declaring publicly that this man is the power of God that is called great. Verse 11 continues it, and they paid attention to him, more attention, because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. So that's who the man is. He's being introduced into the storyline, big overarching theme. We slow down. It has the contrasting, uh, 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 contrasting but there. And then we introduce the man, Simon, who is the magician, big deal within the community, draws lots of attention to himself, and they are absolutely buying it. Now, you'll notice we have our contrasting but again in verse 12. So again, we have now a transition, right, that is um, going in a different direction from where 
that was headed. So it paused from the joy in the city. It introduces this guy who thinks he's a big deal and the city thinks that he's a big deal. And then it uh, refocuses the attention on the overarching legitimate message of the gospel. So at verse 12, see it says, but when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. So see how that light is now shifted, introduced to the character, and now we've got our focus back on the gospel message. And then we see that Simon becomes almost like a side comment to that main point of the gospel message at verse 13, where it says, even Simon, so see the focus is on the gospel, even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. So by putting it that way and in that particular place, what it actually does is it even lends more credibility to the gospel message itself because that's what's in focus. And we see that even Simon believed and was baptized. So it says more really about the gospel message at this particular point than it says about Simon himself because you figure Simon is the one that was kind of a big deal within the community and even Simon is believing and giving credibility to the miracles that he is seeing. So a guy that is actually what, whatever form of magic that he practiced, I don't know if we're talking about, you know, some kind of dark magic that actually involved demonic, um, uh, that had demonic involvement and, and he was practicing magic in some way, or if this is a sleight of hand um, kind of thing. I don't know what kind of magic he's practicing. This is what we know is that he did it for a long time, and he had lots of people that were buying what he was doing. They said, wow, this, this guy really is great. And even this guy who has amazed the people and has received their attention for doing that is now giving credit to these miracles. So there is a sense in which the magician is amazed by the miracles. And so that is saying something, giving a testimony of sorts to the gospel message to this movement, as I've referred to it, and, and communicates that the miracles themselves were real. In fact, not only were they real, they were real enough to him for him to follow through and participate in baptism. And the whole thing with baptism is that it's done in public. You're trying to tell the world that this is who I identify with. So he is going public with his testimony that these miracles are real. So it says that he believed, even he, even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And so what we see then continuing in verses 14 through 17, because that movement, the gospel message is still, is back in view, verses 14 to 17 is the natural progression of what we would see in the expansion of the church. I know that in the grand scheme of you know, all of history or even from the time of Christ until now, that this, uh, this is like the very cutting edge of what's taking place in the church. But really, as we think about where we started in Acts, we're, we already have gotten a sense of what happens. The gospel message gets preached, the church continues to 
expand, and now it's expanded into Samaria, and that's exactly what we're reading here. In verse 14, it says, Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John. So in other words, even Peter and John, remember the apostles stayed behind once the, uh, Philip and the other uh, Samaritans were dispersed, by uh, Saul ravaging the church. They were dispersed out, out into Samaria. That message, that big message of that unity of the kingdom had gotten, the word of that had gotten back to the apostles that had stayed in Jerusalem. And now that they, they have stayed in Jerusalem, they've heard the effectiveness of that gospel in, in Samaria. They, they said, well, man, we need to do something about this. We need to go ahead and send Peter and John to the Samaritans. And verse 15, who came down, Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. So this 12 through 17, verses 12 through 17, is more of what we've come to expect of what we're used to seeing, that in this new covenant era, there is the preaching of the word, there are people that respond in belief, there is baptism that um, takes place in response to that belief, and then they end up receiving the Holy Spirit. But we have Simon introduced in here. And so Simon had been introduced as a character. Remember, we have our, but there was a man named Simon. And then we go back to, but when, uh, when they believed Philip as he preached. And so we see these two things kind of coming together and we wonder what's happening. Because that movement, that movement could be recapped right there in verses 12 and 17. I told you it takes place between, from 12 to 17, but you could recap that where it says in 12, Philip preached, and then in 17, these are the people that he preached to, they received the Holy Spirit. That is basically the definition of the expansion of that church. So we have Simon, we've got the expansion of the church, and then we return back to this Simon the magician, this guy, who, as it says here, believed and was baptized. This is where the real traction takes place in this account. We have the background of everything that went on with Simon. We've got the fact that the church, of what we already are understanding about it, is taking place. It's rolling out exactly as we would expect it to roll out based on the previous um, chapters of Acts. But then we get to verses 18 to 25, where we really learn why this account is in the Bible. We get to see the significance of Simon the magician. And I think it gets kicked off here when we see the way that it's worded in verse 18. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the apostles, uh, the, uh, that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money. And I don't know if that happens to ring a bell, but um, let me put that bell out there for you. Do you remember in Genesis chapter 3 what happened with Eve following her conversation with the serpent? The very next thing that took place, she saw the fruit. It was a delight to the eyes. 
and then she took it. Likewise, in Genesis chapter 6, the sons of God looked down on the daughters of men, and they saw them, they wanted it, and they took it. And here we have, in a similar way, we have Simon who sees what's taking place. The temptation has now been set in motion. And what does he want? He wants now for himself to take it. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money. James chapter 1, each man, each person, and they are lured and enticed by their own desires. It conceives, gives birth to sin, and that is exactly what's taking place here. He sees it, and the temptation is set in motion, and he wants to follow through on that. So all of the sudden now, this background that we know about Simon and the fact that he participated in some way in magic, was called Simon the Magician, and that may have had some positive effect with giving credence to the miracles that Philip performed. Whatever good that that did is now when it's turned and when the light is shined on his heart, now we realize that his experience with the magic actually reveals that he himself is still full of sin. Instead of just attesting to the greatness of God and to the miracles that Philip had performed, what's really being revealed is his own heart and it leads to his own, desire, uh, to his own demise. What's revealed here in this account is that his desire for power his desire for the people's attention is greater than his desire for God. There is something in his life that he loves more than God. There is something in his life that he loves more than God. Now, how do we know that Simon didn't just have a weak moment. How do we know he didn't have a misstep? How do we know that, um, you know, he just didn't make a faux pas and go, wow, I can't believe I actually said that. I, I don't mean that at all. Well, I think it becomes very apparent because in his request in verse 19, notice, he says, give me this power so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. He is looking squarely at himself. And then we see Peter's response to him, beginning in verse 20. But Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you. So first of all, he tells him, your silver can perish with you perish with you. He's not just saying, hey, you might want to rethink what you're saying there. He's saying, may your silver perish along with you. And then he adds to that, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. And then he continue, Peter continues on in verse 21, you have neither part nor lot 
in this manner, for your heart is not right before God. So notice how he uses that redundant speech. It's like a turn of phrase. We do the same thing. The whole kit and caboodle, right? We, we use this redundant type of phraseology to communicate the entirety of something, the wholeness of it. And Peter does the same thing here where he says, you have neither part nor lot in this matter. The very matter that Peter and John are there to participate in, the very reason that they're even there is to be used as tools of God to come behind Philip and his proclamation of the gospel and the response of these people who have believed and been baptized but had not yet received the Holy Spirit. Their role, Peter's personal role in this narrative at this time was to deliver the Holy Spirit, and that's the very thing that Peter is pointing to Simon and saying, you don't have a part or a lot in what I'm doing here. The purpose that I have for being here, which is to be a tool for God to deliver the Holy Spirit. And then his assessment continues. As if that's not enough, Peter's assessment continues in verse 22. Repent therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. If possible. We're talking about the Apostle Peter, who has been sent there and is being used by God to deliver the Holy Spirit to these people. And not only does he rebuke Simon, but he even makes quite clear the question of whether or not God will forgive him at all. I mean, that is, that's heavy right there. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. And again, as if that wasn't enough, he actually breaks it down into two categories to describe why he's saying, if possible. Because there is something, he is uh, given some sort of foresight through the Holy Spirit, but he knows something of Simon's heart of what's going on here. Certainly, Peter would have known that Simon had already, air quotes here, believed, and that he also has participated in believers' baptism physically, and yet he is also able to declare at verse 23, for I see, first of all, I see that you are in the gall of bitterness. You are in the gall of bitterness. What he's saying is that despite you, Simon, despite your profession of faith, there is something that you love more in your life. In his case, it would appear to be power and the attention that comes from that power, that it is an idol in his life. This same concept of bitterness we see in Proverbs chapter 5, the first six verses, and it's this... Um, 
this bitterness is mentioned, but interestingly, this is actually in the context of sexual sin. Proverbs 5, starting at verse 1, my son, be attentive to my wisdom, incline your ear to my understanding, that you may be that you may keep discretion and your lips may guard knowledge. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death, her steps follow the path to Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life, her, her ways wander, and she does not know it. This is describing a sin that consumes someone and that while it is appealing to the eyes, it actually uh, ends up bitter as wormwood. In fact, it's described as being bitter like poison because it's sharp as a two-edged sword. The person that takes in this bitterness ends up in Sheol. They end up in the place of the dead. This concept of the bitterness being like a sword or being like a poison is also seen in Deuteronomy 29, verse 18, where it says, Beware lest there be among you a man or woman or clan or tribe whose heart is turning away today from Yahweh our God to go and serve the gods of those nations. So see the context here is idol worship. Is there something that has mastery over you? Beware lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. What we're seeing in this account with Simon, between Peter and Simon, is this root of bitter fruit. This is poisonous fruit that is coming from his heart. And Peter is calling him out for it. He is saying, you are, in fact, in the gall of bitterness. Second, he says that he is in, I see that you are in the bond of iniquity. You know what bonds are. They're restraints. He's telling him, you are in the restraints. You are being bound by your sin. This sin has absolute mastery over you. John chapter 8, Jesus said, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. That's what sin does. It enslaves you. They are shackles, and when you make a practice of them, you remain its slave. Second Peter chapter 2, I want to point out some verses here. First, in verses 13 and 14, it gives, um, it categorizes who it's talking about. Halfway through verse 13, it says, they are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice steady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. So this is a description in 2 Peter 2, 13 and 14 of a particular people that are consumed by sin. These are people whose sin have mastery over them. These are people who have a greater love for their sin than they, certainly than they do for God. And then moving down to verse 18 in 2 Peter chapter 2, it talks about what happens with them. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of those, 
sensual passions of the flesh, those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. Whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. We have that example in Simon, and we need to evaluate our own lives as well, because what happens is that sin promises freedom. And yet, the whole time that sin is promising freedom, it's actually delivering shackles. It's actually enslaving people that submit to it. Simon is in the gall of bitterness, and he is in the bonds of iniquity. That is to say that he is engaged in a life-dominating sin. And life-dominating sins always promise contentment. They always promise satisfaction. They always promise fulfillment. Or to use uh, the language we have here in our account today, they promise freedom. Brother and sister, those that are consumed by greed, that have to have more, there is no amount of stuff that you are ever going to have. There's no dollar amount. There's no number of zeros in your bank account, cash in your wallet. You are never going to drive a car that's nice enough or fast enough or big enough or new enough that is ever going to give you freedom from greed. If you lust for power, there is no amount of control that you can have within a job or for that matter, control within a marriage over your spouse, control over your friends, control over anything in your life where you will have so much control that you can say, you know what, I am truly free because I control what's taking place within my life. And certainly, should go without saying, but I'm going to say it, there are no sexual sins. There are adultery, prostitution, pornography, there is no amount of so-called sexual freedom that will actually deliver freedom. It doesn't exist. There's no frequency of sex that someone could have, no amount of it that you could have, that you will finally get to the point where you say, you know what, I'm free. There's no kind of sex or sexual immorality that you could perform that you would then say, okay, now I'm free. That is not how any of this works. God gives us many good and wonderful gifts that fit into these categories, but they are abused because they themselves take control of us when we love them more than we love our God. And we see that playing out with Simon the magician. We have this sweeping, life-changing, eternity-changing message that takes place and continues in, in Acts chapter 8, and that Saul, even in his ravaging the church, is actually a part of progressing, and yet we slow down to see Simon the magician to, com to communicate this very message that just because someone believes and even follows through with baptism does not in and of itself secure their salvation. In fact, continuing in 
that second Peter chapter two, I want to read two more verses out of that in that description, uh, a description of those particular people that themselves um, promise freedom and yet are slaves of corruption. It continues down in verses 20 to 22. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, does that sound like Simon? He's escaped through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. They are again entangled in them and overcome the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them, the dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. So the message here in this interplay between the man that was introduced and this movement, the gospel message, is that there is a scenario in which belief is not enough. And I want to make sure I make it very clear that what that difference is, is true repentance. In fact, earlier in Acts, when Peter was uh, preaching to the people in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, he said, and Peter said to them, because the people were cut, actually, I'll go back to verse 37, because when he was preaching, the people were cut to the heart. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter, one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. How do you get the Holy Spirit? By being forgiven of your sins. How are you forgiven of your sins? By believing in the name of Jesus Christ. And what is part of believing in the name of Jesus Christ? Well, that's being baptized. And what precedes being baptized? Repentance. Repentance. But not just any kind of repentance. Not just any kind of, I'm sorry. Not just some form of, I feel bad for the things that I did. 2 Corinthians 7 verse 10 says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation. You see, there it is, right in a row. Godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation. You want actual salvation. It isn't just belief. It's godly grief that produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. It would appear that Simon here is demonstrating a worldly grief. In fact, we see it, we see it in his response because he goes into a pure panic afterward. Verse, uh, so I'm back to uh, Acts 8, verse 24, and Simon answered, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. He's horrified at the prospect of what they're saying. But what we don't know, and I believe have some reason to doubt, is whether or not he had true godly grief that produces repentance that leads to salvation based on what it is that Peter is saying to him. This really just destroys um, what's referred to as easy believism, you know, this, hey, um, say a prayer, say a sinner's prayer and just move on about your life. 
Don't get me wrong, it is absolutely possible, and some of you may even have the testimony in your own life that you know unequivocally that you are one of God's children and you believe in him and you love him, and it all happened based on you know, some, some history where someone introduced you and encouraged you to say what's known as the sinner's prayer. God, praise God that if he used that in that way in your life, then all glory be to him. But on the flip side of that, to think that all you have to do is to get somebody to say some magical series of words, checks the box, and you've got your fire insurance, then you are sadly mistaken because here we have a man who did much more than any, any saying of special words. He actually believed, he followed through with baptism, and yet we find that he is in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. If there is no godly grief, there is no true repentance. And without true repentance, there is no salvation. A mental assent, an acknowledgement of the big man upstairs, that there's someone behind it all, that everything happens for a reason, that there is a God, all these little cliches and little fluffy things to say, you know, aren't going to result in salvation. The devils, the demons acknowledged God. Even the demons believe in God. Do you remember when Jesus at one point went to cast the demon out of uh, the man possessed? And it's the demon that spoke through the man and said, I know who you are, the son of the most high. And that demon certainly was not saved, and he declared an absolute truth about the divinity of Jesus Christ. But what is absent from what that demon declared? Godly grief that leads to true repentance that results in salvation. I have great news for believers. A reprimand or a... Or a Exhortation, I should say, first, and then I want to assure you of something. Galatians 5.1 says, for freedom, so now we're talking about real freedom, okay, not, not some fake promise of freedom that sin offers. For freedom, Christ has set us free. And then immediately on the other side of that, stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. A yoke is just another, you know, yoke on an oxen is just another form of bondage. If you are free, if you are Christ, then you are free. That is your identity. And your job is not to be the dog that returns to its vomit. You have no part in that sin of your prior life. Don't be identified with it. Do not make a practice of sinning. Do not submit yourself. Do not submit your members to that sin and, again, to the yoke of slavery. The second thing I want to point out is that once you have godly grief, there's, it's, it, there's no regret that's tied to it. Because that's not your identity, not only do you not return to it, but you can be reminded, I am reminding you, God is reminding you from his word that that is not your identity. You don't need to carry that guilt around because it's not who you are. It is gone. 
And I would turn your attention to just two more verses here out of Romans chapter 6. Romans 6, verse 6 says, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. If you are a participant in the family of God, if you have, if you have truly produced godly grief, if you love God more than you love your sin, it isn't that you will be sinless, but what we know as it relates to our identity is that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. And then further down in the chapter, so Romans 6, verses 12 to 14, hear this, please. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. That's who you are. You are under grace and not under law and you can live a life free of the guilt of your past and you can also through the strength of Christ, not return to that yoke of slavery. In our final hymn, we are reminded that our only grounds for freedom is the foundation of the solid rock of Christ, and our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, Freedom, true freedom, can only be found in you. Sin promises freedom. Sin promises contentment. Sin promises fulfillment. And it delivers bondage. It delivers bitterness. In the end, it is death. Lord, help us to see clearly within our own lives that those yokes that we need to avoid, that we would not return to any of those habits, that there would be no life-dominating sins, that there would not be things in our lives that have mastery over us. Remove our love for the things of this world that bring temporary pleasure and fill it, replace that with a love, an increased love for you, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.